Today on Focal Point, Pastor Mike Fabares talks about the internal battle between our flesh and our spirit. The paganism that is so easily a part of our own lives, it doesn't come from our heart if we're real Christians. And the problem is we're still encased in this flesh. And this flesh, as the Bible puts it, is at war with the spirit and they don't jive with each other when it comes to their desires. Their desires are pitted against each other. So in that sense, I just want you to know there's a part of you that does not want to listen to what God says. Frank Sinatra famously sang, I did it my way. And most of us can easily relate to that desire. Even mature Christians struggle to do things God's way. And today on Focal Point, Pastor Mike Fabares warns new believers and even those who've walked with the Lord for years to beware of the desire to disobey God. We're in Acts chapter 7, verse 37. I'm your host, Dave Drewy. And now Pastor Mike is continuing a powerful warning message called The Paganism of the People. Remember where we are as Stephen is talking to the council. We know it as the Sanhedrin. They've accused him of rejecting the teaching of Moses. So he spent some time here. We've dealt with it the last three weeks talking about Moses. And now the attention turns from Moses, this deliverer, to how the people responded to the deliverer. I've called this message the paganism of the people, which you wouldn't expect because they're the people of God, the covenant people, the beneficiaries of the promises of God. And yet they're acting like they're pagan counterparts that they just came out of oppression from. The Egyptians and their gods are now becoming their gods, and the patterns of cultural compromise are rampant among the people of God, even though they're following Moses. In their hearts, they're not. Look at how it's described here, beginning in verse 37. Follow along with me, Acts 7, 37. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, now he's going to quote a very important prophecy of the Pentateuch, It's a quotation from Deuteronomy 18.15, which I'm sure your Bible notes somewhere, in a footnote at least it should, that God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. That's an oft-repeated line. And even though sometimes we see it quoted verbatim, like Peter quoted it in Acts chapter 3 when he was preaching just a couple chapters previously, he quotes that saying Christ is the fulfillment of this. There was a prophet that was expected, and Christ is that prophet. When John the Baptist was out there, gathering a following, they ask the question, is this the prophet? Right? And they don't mean just a prophet. They mean that this prophet, the prophet of, of Deuteronomy 18. Matter of fact, they would see Jesus do some things and they would say, I know this is the prophet that was to come. I mean, they, they, they knew that this was a message about someone greater than Moses that was coming. And of course, Stephen is building this parallel between the way they rejected Christ, saying, listen, just like they rejected Moses, now it's your turn. You had an opportunity here with a greater prophet, the prophet. As it says in Hebrews, God spoke through the prophets in many portions in many ways in the Old Testament, but he's spoken to us in in, in these last times in his son. Here is the ultimate spokesperson of God, God himself, God in human form. And he is presenting the truth, and they rejected it. Well, this Moses who said to the Israelites, and he takes that, seems like a random quote, but it's not a random quote because that's the whole point of him standing before the Sanhedrin that had condemned Jesus to die just months earlier. He says, this is the one, speaking of Moses, who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. Now, here's the whole point. 
he received living oracles to give to us. Just like Jesus wanted to make it clear, he was the prophet fulfilling Deuteronomy 18, 15, and they didn't listen to it. He said, you have someone that's going to judge you. Moses will judge you. Moses in his writings, they speak of me. He kept telling the people. And here were the Sanhedrin listening to Stephen going, you're rejecting Moses. And here's Stephen saying, you're rejecting Moses. <laughs> because Moses talked about Christ and you're not accepting and embracing Christ. That is what God has said. And it's there and it's clear. And I just want us to affirm that. If you're taking notes, jot it down. Number one. We need to have very clearly in our minds this very simple fact, God has clearly spoken. We need to know that. Know that God has clearly spoken. There's just no confusing this in the pages of Scripture. God has clearly spoken. And there'll be no excuse for us to stand before God and say, eh, you're right, I wasn't clear on that. Are there some secret things that belong to the Lord? Deuteronomy 29, 29, sure. Are there some things we wish we had greater clarity on? Yes. But the things that people say there is no clarity on, which are the hot button issues, are the things that God anticipates in every generation. They just recur every cycle of every generation, and he's been clear on them. They're not confusing. It's just that we have a problem hearing them. Now, I understand hearing them is a gift. Jesus talked a lot about having eyes to see and ears to hear. And maybe that's a good place for you to start. If you're struggling with the things that God has said or you think they're not clear, let's start with just saying, God, I want you to give me ears to hear them. I want to be able to at least reasonably stand back just like I want someone to stand back and listen to what I say and reasonably interpret it. That clarity. There's a, there's a Latin word that was used to embody this doctrine in church history that comes from the Latin word transparent. It's, it's transparent. You can look past the words to the meaning and the truth of it. And that concept of what that is is what we need to get back to in our own minds and say, God, maybe though there's some kind of internal problem with me, which of course is where the text goes next. There is a problem if your heart is not in the right place. Matter of fact, go back to, to Acts chapter 7, and in verse 39, you'll see the diagnosis, even though he's giving living oracles, Moses is, even about to the Sanhedrin, that there would be a prophet that is coming that is Christ. Here, you guys are much like they were in the desert, and you're not, you're not desiring to hear it. Look at verse 39 again. It says, our fathers refused. There's a, there's a volitional decision, an issue of what I don't want to do. I don't want to do it. As a matter of fact, I take the avenue through which it comes, and I, this Greek word is to shove. I push it out of the way. I shove it aside. I thrust it aside. I don't want to hear Moses anymore. For in their hearts, they turn to Egypt. Now, there's the real problem. Their hearts are not where their bodies are. Just like a lot of people are in church today, all across the country, their heart is not there. They don't want to hear the preaching of the word. They want to hear a fanciful interpretation that'll affirm what they want to hear. And you shouldn't go to church to get what you want to hear, even though there are things in the Bible you probably do want to hear. We need to come to church to hear what we need to hear because we're going to face temptations in our lives when you look at the cockpit of the Christian life and God's going to say, don't flip that switch, don't push that button, don't pull that lever. You need to stay away from those things because there's consequences involved. But I need you to know that there's a problem that can very much be and reflect the problem of the Israelites in the desert, and that is a problem in your heart, an internal issue. And that's why they said, well, I know God was very clear about making sure we don't have idols back there in Exodus 20, but hey, Aaron, can you make some gods for us? I, I want something clear, like we had in Egypt. You know, we had in Egypt, we had gods in Egypt. They were very visible. You could see them. They were idols. We'd like to have something like that. And you should know, by the way, if you study the golden calf, the Israelites 
probably likely had this view of a hybrid, a, a syncretistic view, we call it, of taking the Egyptian gods and saying, well, we want this God of Yahweh that is our national identity, and we'd like to kind of merge him. As a matter of fact, we might want to see him in our worship as kind of riding on the back of this golden calf, but at least we can have the object of worship. We can kind of feel like the culture, and everyone can give us a high five that we're kind of doing what we saw back there in Egypt, but really we kind of put our own twist on it, our spin on it, and it's still kind of the God thing of Judaism, but it, it kind of is a hybrid. I know God said don't do that, and it's a compromise, but... This is how we want to do it. And that's what they did. Because you know what? I'm not liking the timetable of Moses. I don't even like the fact that he's slow in giving us the information that we need. This Moses who led us out of Egypt. I mean, we're here now, but we don't know what's become of him. Where is he? And they made a golden calf and they offered a sacrifice to the idol and they rejoicing in the works of their hands. Well, you can say that's a passage about non-Christians. I just want to warn you it's easy for us to have the same kind of response as non-Christians have. Non-Christians at your work, you go and share the gospel, you share the truth, you share all the moral code of God and say, this is how people ought to live. God made us. He can set the instruction manual and you ought to live like that. They're going to reject that and you're going to go, wow, look at them. Total non-Christian. What pagans? Well, the paganism that is so easily a part of our own lives, it doesn't come from our heart if we're real Christians. And I say that because Ephesians chapter 2 says God has made us alive inside. We were dead to him. As Ezekiel said, we had a heart of stone. Now we have a heart of flesh. We do have a relationship with God. And in that sense, you could say you have ears to hear. And in that sense, I say at the core of your being, if you're a real Christian here today and you've really put your trust in Christ, you've repented of your sins, you have ears to hear what God says. And there is the core part of you that resonates with the revelation of God when it is read and when it is taught, when it is read in a book, even if it makes you tremble a bit, even if it makes you say gulp, that's a hard truth. You want to follow that. You want to believe it because God is speaking and you're born again. You have the spirit of God in your life. Well, if that's the case, I just want you to know this. We still have a problem. And the problem is we're still encased in this flesh. And this flesh, as the Bible puts it, is at war with the spirit and they don't jive with each other when it comes to their desires. Their desires are pitted against each other. So in that sense, I just want you to know there's a part of you that does not want to listen to what God says. Matter of fact, that'd be a good way to put it. Just like the Israelites here didn't want to listen, I think we need to be aware of, I put it this way, beware of your desire not to listen. Not at the core of your being if you sit here as a Christian. But your flesh is not going to want to hear these things. And by the way, let's just build some concentric circles. Your flesh isn't going to want to hear those things, like there should be no idols in your worship. Because the culture doesn't want to hear those things and they don't have a heart that it beats in sync with God. They do not have ears to hear. And they're always putting us at odds with them and they give us pressure. So the pressure of our culture, the Bible calls it the world, is pressing in on our flesh, this part of our humanity that doesn't want to listen. And so the culture and our flesh are both kind of in sync here and the one presses upon us. And the reason that there's a problem there is ultimately because there is a tempter that sits outside of all of that that is actively involved in steering the culture. Put it this way. The Bible calls him the God of this age or the power that work in the sons of disobedience to keep quoting Ephesians 2. Or the one, as it says in, as the apostle John says in 1 John, the world lies within the power of the evil one. And what was his whole point? In Genesis 3, when he's introduced to us in Genesis 3, he says to Eve, did God really say? What did he want to do? Question the clarity of God's word. Here God gives living oracles. Don't eat of that tree and everything will be fine. There's a lever, don't pull it. There's a button, don't push it. And, and he says that, here, I'm in charge. I make the rules. Here's the instruction manual. And Satan comes along and says, God, God, really say that. Eve, let's think about that. 
And so she said, well, maybe I'm missing out on something. That person, the tempter, is engaged in the culture and the culture is pressing in on our humanity, our following, our flesh, and our flesh is going, eh, there's a lot of me that doesn't want to listen. And that's the problem. When there's a conflict between the core of what I know is true, hearing the words of God, knowing this is what he says, and I listen to the culture say, well, that's a fundamentalist, bigoted, narrow-minded, Bible-thumping thing to believe. I just want to retract. And my flesh goes, don't, don't do that. Don't make them feel that way. And I don't really see beyond that that the tempter is the one who's basically saying, God didn't really say that. God didn't really say that. I'm just really not wanting the conflict. To put it in more practical terms, our day has become a day where we are really concerned about what everyone feels. I don't want to hurt your feelings, man. And that's the problem. Because I can say, I heard what God said. It's very clear. I read it. He's given us living oracles. The prophet has spoken. And I get it. But in my flesh, I don't really like a lot of that. The desires of my flesh. And then the world says, you can't possibly believe that. And I'm saying, I just don't want to hurt you. And as a matter of fact, I can quote Bible verses about how I should love you. And love, I think I means that. So I shouldn't offend you. I don't want to hurt you. I don't want to insult you. I'm for you. I care for you. I'm going to nurture you. And we have this inner debate with ourselves, which is really our spirit arguing with our flesh about how what we say about God's truth may affect other people. And we don't want to do that. Matter of fact, if we offend them, we want to say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Did Did I hurt you with that? I didn't mean to wound you with that. Matter of fact, if you say that, I mean, then that's the loving thing to do because that's, of course, what Jesus would do. <laughs> that's, of course, what Jesus would do. As we're trying to learn the living oracles of God, let me turn you to a passage where Jesus is offending people. John chapter 6. There are many of them. You know that, right? Many passages. And I wish someone would have talked to Jesus and worked out his Christian life a little better so he wouldn't do that all the time. But it seems like every other chapter, he's offending someone. And all I'm concerned with right now is how does he respond when he offends someone? Because I can look at evangelical luminary leaders, best-selling authors, who when they offend someone about saying what is clear in the scripture, they go back and say, I'm really sorry. I'm so sorry. I should have been better at loving you and caring for you. And I didn't want to offend you. And I didn't want to hurt you. And I'm sorry if my words wounded you. And I shouldn't do that. We got to do better, man. We got to do better. We got to do better. I don't want to hurt you. I don't want to offend you. Now, if that's the pattern that I'm supposed to follow, I just think at some point I'm going to see Jesus doing that. At some point, right? I mean, give me some template to follow if John, 1 John 2 says, I'm supposed to walk as Jesus walked. I just want to know what he does when he stands up for truth and offends people. Well, I got a passage for you. One of many, and we could spend all morning. You want a five-hour sermon? We could spend five hours looking at the Gospels, Jesus interacting with people, and when he says something that rubs them the wrong way, that hurts their feelings, that offends them, that wounds them emotionally, that's not a safe space for the conversation. I just want to tell you, this is one of many examples, but let me give you this one. Look all the way down to verse 60. Okay, scroll down to verse 60. John 6, 60. Let's pick up the conversation here. John 6, 60. When many of his disciples heard it, talking about the bread of life, all that, well, here's the response. Because I'm interested in the response and Christ's response to their response. This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Oh, man. We did not like that sermon. Verse 61. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, he said to them, do you take offense to this? Oh, man. Look at verse 62. I am so sorry. I did not know that offended you. If that wounded you, I am sorry. Can I write a letter and retract what I said? I should do much, much better at saying things in a way that are loving and caring and nurturing and uplifting and edifying. I should never say things to you 
that might in some way harm your feelings. Can you see all that in verse 62? He says, if you were offended by that, then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Okay, there's the Daniel 7 reference. The Son of Man coming on the clouds before the Ancient of Days, presenting himself, and all the worlds are called to submit and obey to everything he says. All the allegiance of the world going to this Christ. You know, this truth, by the way, got him crucified before the Sanhedrin that Stephen is talking to. Matter of fact, the regalia of the high priest were torn that day when Jesus made clear this reference regarding the Son of Man and he tore his, his very expensive clothes, saying it's blasphemy. What other t testimony do we need? Crucify this man. Because that was offensive. Now, it was biblical truth. Everything in the scripture was leading up to that, the coming of the Lord in human form to redeem us as a suffering servant and then to be exalted from death and to be the King of kings and Lord of lords. All that was in the Bible. And yet it was offensive to them. And he goes, I'm talking about the bread of life and all of that, making connections to manna in the wilderness. Hey, if that was hard for them to take, I just want to say, what if I went to Daniel 7 and started applying that? Let me truncate this for you. They said, that truth offended us. Jesus said, you ain't heard nothing yet. I mean, you want to get offended, let me just go further into scripture. You're going to be really offended. Why? Keep reading. It is the spirit who gives life. Now, underline this, the flesh is of no help at all. Now, they have no spiritual life in that they're dead, according to Ephesians 2, in their transgressions and sins, the people listening, and of course, the disciples are just passing along the complaints. They're just forwarding the emails to Christ. But the non-Christians that are hating this teaching about the bread of life, they are offended. And he's going, well, they don't have the spirit. This is the 1 Corinthians 2 truth, that if you don't have the spirit, these are truths that are spiritually appraised. You cannot even possibly comprehend them if you don't have the spirit. Of course, you're going to be offended by it. And this flesh is no help at all. Well, they're of the flesh and in the flesh. But here's my question. Read the book of Galatians. Read the book of Romans. My question is, ah, do you have flesh? Are you in the flesh? Well, I'm encased in flesh. So the battle is there. And that's all I'm trying to get you to do with this second point. Beware of your desire not to listen. Now I know the guys at the water cooler don't want to listen to biblical truth. They don't want to hear you quoting John 6 or any other passage. But I'm just wondering, in your flesh, do you want to quote John 6? Well, your heart does, because it's alive to Christ, but your flesh doesn't. Can you see that battle? Just know what's going on. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Those are things that are only rightly understood, not by fallen human beings, but by regenerate human beings. But there are some of you here, even among the top echelon, because the disciples were coming to him and the apostles were there, said, there were some of you, you don't believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Judas, of all people, in the upper ranks of the apostles, he's there as the treasurer and he knows he doesn't even have the spirit. Verse 65. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. You need new life. Verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Oh, the numbers are shrinking. So Jesus said to the 12, man, get them back quick. Write a letter. I will make sure to apologize to them. Mm, mm -mm. He turns to them and go, oh, what about you guys? Because I ain't changing what I said. I cannot back down on the living oracles of truth. I am the prophet and I'm going to tell you what is true. You want to leave too? Simon Peter answered, Lord, this is the right answer, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, the living oracles. And we have believed and we've come to know 
that you are the Holy One of God. You are Daniel 7. I know that. So I don't really have a choice, which means Peter's going to have to suck it up, man up, and get offended by what Jesus says. It all started with this. Verse 60, that was a hard saying. Oh, a lot of people offended. Jesus said, were you offended? Um, you haven't even heard all the truth yet. And he says, Peter, you want to leave? Guys, you want to leave? Peter goes, where are we going to go? The living oracles are what they are. The instruction manual for the Christian life is sitting on your lap. You cannot change that. And he says, don't pull that lever. Don't push that button. Don't toggle that switch. They're painted very clearly, yellow and black. Don't do it. Don't eat of the tree. You're going to have people saying, is that really what God said? You'll have Christian publishers saying, is that really what God said? Because it's going to resonate with the flesh because the flesh now can be in sync with the culture and we can all be a part of this movement that's more affirming and more loving. I get it. I get it. But behind it all is the tempter who is taking the words of God and having you doubt them. And I'm saying, we got to be resolved to know, even though inside of me somewhere, there is a desire for me not to listen. I got to listen. Why? Back to our passage, Acts chapter seven. Because if nothing else, we need to think of this. How does God respond when his people don't listen? Verse 42. Look at the last two verses of our passage this morning. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship of the hosts of heaven. You mean the people that he redeemed out of slavery from Egypt? He gave them over to sin? Yeah, as it's written in the book of the prophets. Amos said, look, did you bring your slain beasts to me during those 40 years? Oh, house of Israel? No, really your heart was somewhere else. And I just let your heart be somewhere else. You set up your tent and in your heart you were worshiping Moloch or, the, or, or your star god or Raphan and the images. I mean, I, I let you do it. I could have stopped you, could have zapped you. And then all that accumulated warning came through the prophets, prophet after prophet after prophet. And then in the end, when you didn't listen, I sent you into exile into Babylon. Ultimate humiliation. Nebuchadnezzar cleans out the place, strips the altar, knocks it to the ground, burns it with fire. And you guys are slaves again, not in Egypt, this time in Babylon. So you got punished for it. Number three, jot this down. You and I, we need to consider sin's consequences. I need you to think it isn't just about a couple days of guilt and shame when you pull that lever. There are other things that are going to come cascading on the heels of those compromises. We've got to say that's a good thing for us to think about. You're listening to Focal Point and a message from Pastor Mike Fabares called The Paganism of the People. And tomorrow we'll hear more about why we need to consider sin and take its consequences seriously. But if you're just tuning in and you missed some of today's program, or if you want to hear the previous messages in this series, you can easily find the series Gospel Lessons from the Old Testament on our Focal Point app or online at focalpointradio.org. Well, most of you are probably familiar with the well-known stories from the Old Testament. But how well do you really know what these stories mean? There are a lot of popular misconceptions floating around, and sometimes even well-read Christians can get mixed up. So to help you get clarity and a better understanding of these important stories, Pastor Mike has selected an excellent resource titled The Most Misused Stories in the Bible, Surprising Ways Popular Bible Stories Are Misunderstood by Eric Bargerhuff. And this helpful book is yours when you give generously to support Focal Point. Simply request your copy of The Most Misused Stories in the Bible when you call 888-320-5885 or give online at focalpointradio.org. Or if you prefer, you can write to us at Focal Point, Post Office Box 2850, Laguna Hills, California, 92654. 
And if you're not quite ready to give just yet, we'd still love to hear from you. Contact us today and we'll send you a fascinating booklet called How We Got the Bible. This beautifully illustrated pamphlet answers some fundamental questions we have all wondered about, such as who wrote the Bible, how was it written, and is it still relevant today? Get your questions answered when you request this month's free gift titled How We Got the Bible. Simply call us at 888 320-5885 or get in touch online at focalpointradio.org. Well, I'm Dave Drewy, inviting you to join us again tomorrow to listen to the conclusion of our message from Pastor Mike called The Paganism of the People. That's coming up Wednesday on Focal Point. Pastor Mike here. You know, we live in a culture where every point of view demands affirmation. It'd be easy to tell people what they want to hear. But we must teach the Bible accurately, unapologetically, and without compromising and without editing it. God's Word is truth. If you want to send me a question, I encourage you to get in touch with us at focalpointradio.org. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Focal Point Ministries.